Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 3, Respect My Authority, Alternatives to Episcopal Rule. Last time, we talked about how bishops were on the front lines of the struggle to keep the church unified in its leadership and to define what exactly it was that the church taught. That doesn't mean that bishops were the only source of power in the early church, though. In fact, much of the story of the 3rd and 4th centuries is the story of bishops struggling with other, more charismatic authorities within the church for power and influence. Now, these other authorities generally fell into one of three categories. Well-spoken public intellectuals, martyrs, and monks with a reputation for holiness. Jesus was not the last compelling preacher to arise within the movement that bears his name. Throughout the first few centuries of Christianity, extraordinary people of faith arose to define their religion's teachings in their time. But none of them loomed larger than the third-century figure, Origen, of Alexandria. I say without exaggeration that Origen was easily one of the two most brilliant thinkers Christianity produced in its first millennium. His only competition for the top spot is Augustine of Hippo, and frankly, I think Origen has the better case there. Origen probably wrote more books than any other late ancient Christian author, and the only reason I hedge my best with the word probably is because the majority of them have been lost. We do know that he had a whole team of scribes busy copying out his manuscripts day and night, which tells you something about how full of ideas he was. He also wrote the most profound and popular apologetic work of his day, which was called the Contra Celsum, or in English it would simply be Against Celsus. That may seem like kind of a mean title to you, but the ancient world was a simpler place, in which if you thought somebody else had said something really dumb in public, and you wanted to tell the world why they were dumb in public, you just titled your book Against the Dumb Person and published it. No need to cloak your intentions in indirect language or faint praise you don't really mean. So in Origen's case, what had happened is that a pagan philosopher named Celsus wrote a book called Against the Christians, stating all the reasons why he believed the Christians to be superstitious, seditious, and all-around stupid. So Origen fired back with a book called Against Celsus, outlining all the reasons why Celsus was totally, totally wrong. Ah, the joy of unashamed, unabashed argument. Now, when Origen wasn't busy writing 600-plus page refutations of pagan criticisms, he was busy inventing whole new fields of scholarly inquiry. His work on first principles is the first attempt to systematically discuss all the major topics of Christian theological teaching, and it still required reading in many seminaries today. But above all else, Origen cared about the Bible. He wrote commentaries on almost every single book in the Bible, and he also compiled a massive analysis of all the existing biblical manuscripts. This massive manuscript is called the Hexapla. You don't need to remember that name, but I tell you because I find it a very fun word to say, and now I have an excuse to say it a lot in this episode. The Hexapla set out six different texts of the Bible in parallel columns, 
so that the scholar could compare that text across different Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. This is a huge deal. It's the start of what we today call textual criticism. Since all biblical texts were copied out by hand, typos and clerical errors were just a fact of life. The Hexapla allowed scholars to set out different texts against each other to correct errors and gain insight into how a passage's meaning might change across translations. Part of the reason that Origen was able to put this together is because, in addition to being super productive, he also had the superpower of being very, very lucky. He apparently just straight up found an entire copy of the Old Testament just sitting in a shop in Jericho. Completely new text, unknown to him before, which he then bought and used in the scholarship that generated the Hexapla. And because some people get all the talent, Origen was also a brilliant teacher who was beloved by his students. His fame would grow so great that in his later years, the emperor's mother would seek him out as her personal tutor in philosophy. Here's how one of his students described his lectures, and I quote, It was like a spark falling in our deepest soul, setting it on fire, making it burst into flame within us. It was, at the same time, a love for the holy word, the most beautiful object of all, that by its ineffable beauty attracts all things to itself with irresistible force. And it was also love for this man, the friend and advocate of the holy word. I was thus persuaded to give up all other goals. I had only one remaining object that I valued and longed for, philosophy, and that divine man who was my master of philosophy. End quote. So, Origen was clearly as brilliant and charming and impressive as a human being could possibly be, right? There's nothing more I could tell you that would make him even more impressive, right? Wrong. In addition to being stone-cold, sickeningly brilliant, Origen was also a man of irreproachable character. Born sometime around the year 185 AD, Origen was not yet 17 years old when an empire-wide persecution broke out. Now, the emperor of the time ordered all Christians to be executed. This included Origen's father, who was beheaded. Origen himself was probably spared because he was not a Roman citizen, and therefore enforcement was a bit more lax for him. Whereas his father, being a respectable and fairly wealthy member of the community, would make a good example. The persecution left a young Origen as the oldest son to care for his entire family of nine. And care for them Origen did. A year later, at just 18 years of age, Origen got a job teaching at the prestigious academy in Alexandria, a little bit like being appointed to a lifelong tenured professor at Harvard today. In between teaching, writing, and caring for a family of nine, Origen decided that he just really was not being challenged enough, so he also adopted the ascetic, self-denying lifestyle of many Greek philosophers in order to better concentrate on the pursuit of wisdom. He ate a simple diet and abstained from alcohol, regularly walking barefoot and wearing only a single cloak. Now, this ascetical lifestyle also probably included reduced sleep and keeping vigils at night. And on this point, I'm afraid I must part company with Origen, because the road to Nicaea is most definitely brought to you by a good night's sleep. The one mattress brand that will give you a good night's sleep better than any other is Casper Mattress, which is what I would say if Casper was paying me for this. They aren't, 
But truth be told, I just love my Casper mattress so much that I can't help but plug them anyway. Every evening, I come home from work and murmur, Oh, my dearest friend, how I have missed you. I am not saying this to a partner or roommate, and I am definitely not saying it to any of my non-existent pets. I speak these words to my Casper mattress, whose firm support has just the right amount of give to make me feel refreshed and comforted as I sink within it. Like you, I listen to podcasts, and I usually skip over the commercial breaks. But sometimes, just sometimes, when it's a Casper ad, I stay and listen to it just so that I can emphatically agree that it is an obsessively engineered mattress at a ridiculously affordable price. So, if you are looking for a new mattress, do yourself a favor and go check out Casper. Who knows? You might become the next ascetical scholarly wonderkind of Christianity. If nothing else, you'll feel more rested. Use promo code RoadToNicea at checkout to confuse Casper's marketing department since they definitely didn't authorize that code. Who knows? Perhaps they'll do some research and find out about one church history podcaster who is very, very excited about their product. Now, if Origen's ascetical lifestyle sounds boring to you, it wasn't. Once he had established himself in the intellectual ferment of Alexandria, Origen began to travel widely. He visited Rome and Arabia and spent an extended amount of time in Palestine after local unrest caused him to flee Alexandria. While in Palestine, the local bishops admired him so much that they asked him to preach sermons, even though he was not ordained. Origen would stand up on a Sunday, ask the bishop which of the three to four scripture passages that had been read that day he should preach on. The bishop would choose one, and Origen would just start preaching on the spot. No preparation, no notes, no time, other than his many hours of study and his massive, massive brain. We still have many of Origen's sermons, and they are among the most brilliant expositions of the Bible ever recorded. Not only did the bishops love Origen so much that they let him preach on, well, basically whatever they said, they also brought him in as a one-man anti-heretical task force to oversee the doctrine of other bishops. This is a huge deal. As I said last episode, bishops were the overseers of the church. They were supposed to be on top. So the idea that a non-bishop would be able to correct a bishop's teaching speaks to just how extraordinary Origen's reputation was. When the bishop Heraclides taught an erroneous doctrine of the Trinity, a regional group of bishops called in Origen to examine him. We have a transcript of the dialogue, and it's a fascinating masterclass in how Origen worked. After a brief question and answer, where he's just asking Heraclides to tell him a little bit about what he believes, Origen manages to host Heraclides on his own petard by asking, So do we confess two gods? To which Heraclides, on the basis of his previous answers, can only say, Well, yes, but, but the power is one. This would have been an extremely embarrassing thing to say, and it was definitely enough to convince the assembled bishops that Origen had won the day. Indeed, Origen's diplomatic reply was, But as our brethren take offense at the statement that there are two gods, we must formulate the doctrine carefully and show in what sense they are two, and in what sense the two are one god. Which is late ancient church speak for, Bro, you messed up. You can't say there are two gods. Never say there are two gods, dude. 
Origen then concludes the dialogue by giving a long explanation of the proper way to account for divine unity and duality. To make a long story short, Origen points out that the Bible talks about various ways of things becoming one, based on what the things are. In Genesis, Adam and Eve are said to become one flesh. In the epistles, Christ and the righteous person are called one spirit. So humans are united together in flesh, and a human and Christ are united in spirit. The Son and the Father are therefore one in a higher way than spirit. They are one God. So yeah, that's it. Origen just basically explained the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and that, friends, has been the road to Nicaea. I'll see you later. No, I'm just kidding. If that answer doesn't satisfy you, don't worry. It won't satisfy anybody in the 4th century either. But the bishops of this council, who are not particularly keen to delve into the metaphysical questions that gripped the 4th century, were basically satisfied with this answer, and then went on to ask Origen the really burning, hard-hitting question on everybody's mind. Is the soul blood? Now, much as I would love to walk you through the glorious awkwardness of Origen explaining to a crowd of credulous bishops that, no, the soul is not just like the blood, I did promise not to turn this podcast into a trek through ancient minutiae. So let's just say that Origen quite confidently and authoritatively responds to their question in this narrative. In fact, Origen is pretty confident in his abilities throughout the whole dialogue. At one point, he says that he, quote, was impelled to deal very severely with the incorrect bishops, so severely, in fact, that he would have preferred to leave the subject and to go away. But for the sake of honor and for the subject under debate, he summoned us to deal with it. In other words, well, guys, I think this is so weird that I would have preferred to correct quietly, but y'all summoned me here, so I guess we're doing this. That's a bold thing to say to a group of bishops in any time, and it was especially true in Origen's time. Because, you see, there was one man who was not thrilled with Origen's brilliance, and that would be his bishop back home in Alexandria, a guy by the name of Demetrius. Demetrius was interested in expanding his authority. As you might imagine, though, it's really hard to get people to listen to you when a once-in-a-millennium genius is busy teaching on the same Bible as you, working with the same people as you, and just generally being a better person than you. So Demetrius was really quite angry to see Origen getting all the praise, attention, and credit, and he was especially angry to see Origen preaching in Palestine when that was not something lay people usually did. So he wrote an angry letter to the bishops in Palestine, telling them that they were bad at their jobs for letting Origen preach, and demanding that they return his school teacher, in his words, to him. The bishops responded with a letter of their own, suggesting that Demetrius might be jealous of Origen's status and refusing to do anything. In other words, it was basically Christian speak for, Hey, Demetrius, we got your letter, and we're sending it back so you can shove it right back into your library, because we are not persuaded. But Origen, not wanting to make a fuss, complied and returned home. He must have decided that he had a taste for preaching, though, because he repeatedly asked Demetrius to ordain him to the priesthood, a request Demetrius repeatedly denied. Demetrius kept Origen on a short leash until 231, when he sent the brilliant scholar on a mission to Athens. On the way, Origen stopped by his old stomping grounds in Palestine and reconnected with some of his old fanboy bishops. Origen, apparently tired of Demetrius's pettiness, 
asked one of the bishops there if he could be ordained a priest, and was warmly accepted, probably with the bishop geeking out about how how cool it was going to be to be ordaining him. I mean, he's just the biggest fan. Could could Origen do an autographed stylus etching of his face? Which is, I, just, he'd love to see. He'd love to show it to all his friends. He'd just love it. So Origen was ordained by the bishops who loved him more than anyone, and his own bishop was livid. Demetrius wrote up a condemnation saying that Origen's ordination by someone other than his local bishop was insubordination. It's not clear how much of a case Demetrius might have had here. It certainly wasn't the norm for someone to be ordained outside of the region where they lived, but as far as I know, there was no church law that forbade it. But in case that didn't do the trick, Demetrius is credited for publishing several malicious rumors about Origen, most prominently that he castrated himself, an allegation we will explore in the next supplemental episode. He also accused Origen of proclaiming that the devil would be saved. Now, there is substantial debate about whether Demetrius started these rumors or whether he is simply the most likely culprit to have started them, since he is the only person we know of who hated Origen's guts. Whatever the truth is, Origen spent some of his considerable energy for the rest of his life defending himself from these sorts of rumors. He would live out his remaining days in Palestine, a sort of unofficial exile from his home city. He remained until the end of his days brilliant, verbose, and extraordinary. But his conflict with his bishop meant that he was not to see Alexandria ever again. Origen's life ended in a fashion he probably would have wanted. In the year 250, the Emperor Decius declared a persecution of the Christians, ostensibly because of a bad plague that had swept the empire in the previous year. An illegal sect like Christians made easy scapegoats for exactly this sort of act of nature. This time, Origen was not a teenage nobody, but the brightest star in the Christian firmament, and he did not escape Rome's notice. He was imprisoned and tortured for two long years before being released after Decius's death and the end of the persecution. Release came too late to save him, though, and he died within the year at the age of 69. Origen had been many things in his life. A teacher of unparalleled reputation, a thinker of extraordinary brilliance, a priest with arguably more power than his own bishop. But he ended his life the way he almost began it, as a martyr for his faith. And that brings us to the second category of alternate authority. Martyrdom was probably the oldest source of charisma in the Christian church. Martyrs had a pretty impeccable pedigree in Christianity. After all, if a martyr is someone who dies for the sake of their beliefs, then the first martyr in Christianity was Jesus. And the second martyr was the deacon Stephen, who upon his death purportedly saw heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, there is much to make of that famous tale from Acts chapter 7, but the big thing here is that Stephen, on his death, was granted a personal vision of heaven as a result of his martyrdom. Many early Christians took this to mean that martyrdom was a straight ticket into heaven. No matter what else you did or didn't do, no matter how often you had skipped church or denied the faith, if you died for your faith, you could count on making it to the pearly gates. After all, how could you not? You died the same way that Jesus did. In fact, the church's tradition of venerating saints probably started with the veneration of martyrs. Because martyrs were presumed to be in heaven, they had guaranteed access to God. 
which meant that if you needed something and wanted a good word put in with the Lord, but felt a little uncomfortable praying in person, you could pray to a martyr and have them intercede on your behalf. This later evolved to the point where all saints, whether they were martyrs or not, were presumed to have this kind of access, and then were assigned to be the patrons of particular problems. But that's another story. For now, just know that martyrs are a really big deal. Their lives are valorized and retold over and over again, and those martyrs who were teachers often had their doctrines enshrined as unquestionable orthodoxy. I mean, someone that devoted to the cause had to understand God, right? To give you a one example of the way that martyrs were celebrated and venerated, let's talk about one of the most famous examples of martyr literature that we have, the Passion of Perpetua and Felicity. The text claims to be a diary of the eponymous Perpetua, although there is no way to verify that claim. Here is the basic plot. Perpetua and Felicity are both in prison, having previously confessed their Christian faith during a persecution. Perpetua's dad comes in, begging her to renounce her faith so that she can live. She refuses to do so, and only takes comfort from her fellow Christians. She is baptized while in prison. Apparently she was in that only-get-baptized-right-before-your-death camp that drove bishops crazy. And church deacons pull a few strings for her so that she can get in a nicer section of the prison, not because she needs the comfort, but because she has a newborn baby that she's nursing in prison there. Then, Perpetua's brother, who apparently is at least Christian curious, if not also a Christian himself, asks her to get a vision from God about whether she will be saved or not. Perpetua agrees, and the next night has a vision that is so extraordinary that I can't summarize it. I simply have to recount it for you in full. So here it is. I saw a ladder of tremendous height made of bronze, reaching all the way to the heavens, but it was so narrow that only one person could climb up at a time. To the sides of the ladder were attached all sorts of metal weapons. There were swords, spears, hooks, daggers, and spikes, so that if anyone tried to climb up carelessly or without paying attention, he would be mangled and his flesh would adhere to the weapons. At the foot of the ladder lay a dragon of enormous size, and it would attack those who tried to climb up and try to terrify them from doing so. And Saturus that's one of her fellow martyrs, was the first to go up, he who was later to give himself up of his own accord. He had been the builder of our strength, although he was not present when we were arrested. And he arrived at the top of the staircase, and he looked back and said to me, Perpetua, I am waiting for you, but take care, do not let the dragon bite you. He will not harm me, I said, in the name of Christ Jesus. Slowly, as though he were afraid of me, the dragon stuck his head out from underneath the ladder. Then, using it as my first step, I trod on his head and went up. Then I saw an immense garden, and in it a gray-haired man sat in shepherd's garb. Tall he was, and milking sheep. And standing around him were many thousands of people clad in white garments. He raised his head, looked at me, and said, I am glad you have come, my child. He called me over to him and gave me, as it were, a mouthful of the milk he was drawing and I took it into my cupped hands and consumed it. And all those who stood around said, Amen. At the sound of this word I came to, with the taste of something sweet still in my mouth. I at once told this to my brother, and we realized that we would have to suffer, and that from now on we could no longer have any hope in this life. So that is Perpetua's extraordinary dream. 
The rest of the narrative plays out as follows. Her mind made up, Perpetua and Felicity with her attend a public trial at which they both refuse to back down. The Roman soldiers are a bit queasy about executing two young mothers, but orders are orders. They are hauled into the gladiatorial arena where wild animals are released to kill them. Now the common presumption here is that Christians were fed to wild lions, but those must have been in short supply as Perpetua and Felicity faced a wild cow instead. The cow charged at them, knocking Felicity to the ground and leaving Perpetua with a nasty gash. Perpetua then rearranged her torn toga to cover her modesty and asked for a hairpin so that her hair wouldn't fall down, giving her the appearance of a mourner in her hour of triumph. This she was granted. Then, looking freshly victorious, she went over to Felicity, helped her off the ground, stood beside her, and as if coming out of a trance, asked, Now when is the mad cow going to come out? Had Perpetua lived in the days of the internet, no doubt people would be handing her crowns and saying, Hey, queen, you dropped this. In the end, Perpetua has to help a Roman soldier kill her by guiding the sword to her throat, as the animals either refuse or are unable to kill her. Now, it is, of course, possible that the details of this story have been significantly embellished in the retelling. But what is more important for us right now is the role that martyrs came to play in the Christian imagination. And this story showcases that beautifully. Martyrs were superheroes, endowed by God with supernatural endurance that allowed them to prove the truth of the gospel, and showed God's never-failing provision of the martyrs. Martyrs also had direct access to God. They were often the recipients of visions and other kinds of special revelations and miracles. I mean, sure, bishops were the apostles' heirs, but martyrs were like a new Christ, dying in the same way as he did, and enjoying the divine comfort that he provided. It's no wonder that people pray to the martyrs and saints after their deaths, and not the bishops. Now, to summarize, Origen shows us just how far you could push against a bishop's authority if you had the right reputation and credentials. But not everybody can be a once-in-a-millennium genius and a martyr to boot. Now, of course, you could attain authority by becoming a martyr yourself, but that required there to be a persecution going on, and those were sporadic at best in the 3rd century. Plus, martyrs could only appreciate their authority on the other side of the pearly gates, since their death is what gave them that special mystique. Most people wanted a different path to spiritual power. And several decades after Origen's death, a new movement began to take shape in the Christian world, one that today we call monasticism. Here is what we know. At the dawn of the 4th century, Christians were fleeing the cities and towns their families had lived in for centuries to live lives of poverty and hardship in the desert. This happened all over the Roman Empire at about the same time, in Egypt, in Syria, in Palestine, in Turkey. Anywhere there was a desert, there were Christians going out to live in it. Nobody is quite sure why this happened, and it was one of scholars' favorite pastimes to argue about. Some think that the monks were mostly peasants who had to flee their farms due to the increasingly unbearable tax burdens of the 4th century empire. Others think that the earliest monks were reacting against the increasing respectability and lack of persecution of their religion. Christianity wasn't supposed to be a bourgeois fascination of the middle class. It was about taking up your cross and following Jesus through difficult things, laying your life down. 
still other scholars suggest that the monastic movement was started by a wandering Buddhist monk who made it all the way over to Egypt. Nobody really knows for sure. What we do know is that the monks quickly established distinctive forms of life that would make them famous, and a reputation for holiness so powerful that there are many today who choose to live a monastic lifestyle. Besides living in the desert, there were several common features of monastic lives. Monks divided their time between church, prayer, and manual labor. Monks usually chose some pretty simple occupation, like braiding rope or basket weaving, that left their minds free to continue prayers while their hands worked. The earliest monks appear to have lived in solitude. They had neither the inclination nor the wealth to build the big fancy monasteries we see in medieval Europe, so most of them just found a nice hole in a cave somewhere to call home. They would gather together with other monks in their neighborhood for worship on a regular basis, perhaps once or more per day for more social monks, and as rarely as once per week for the less social ones. They lived simply, eating simple food, often just bread and water, and fasting quite frequently, regularly staying up all night in vigils, and owning as few possessions as they possibly could. Some of the monks engaged in more extreme practices than others. In the 5th century, a group of Syrian monks would become known as the Pillar Fathers because they got annoyed that too many people were finding them and asking for advice and stuff, so they decided to beat the crowds by moving to the top of little stone pillars from the old Roman buildings in the desert. They lived pretty much their whole lives on maybe a four-foot-by-four-foot four stone column. This, alas, did not discourage the crowds. If anything, there were more people now coming to see the monks living on the pillars, and the Pillar Fathers couldn't get away anymore on account of having only a couple square feet of living space. But the Syrian example is an extreme case. Most monks lived humble lives, on the ground, giving their bodies the minimum needed for sustenance and focusing on cultivating prayer and virtue. But most important for our story is that monks began to gather around a charismatic teacher, usually referred to by the title of Abba or Amma, meaning father or mother, respectively. These super monks were extraordinary teachers who had such keen spiritual insight that they could see into a person's soul and give them advice uniquely tailored to their own plight. Such insight also made them masters of the stone-cold one-liner, and many of those one-liners are preserved in the classic text, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers. If you only read one book from the 3rd century, make it this one. Well, okay, that's not quite right. Actually, make it Origins on First Principles, but then make it this one. Sayings of the Desert Fathers lists various anecdotes and sayings attributed to the Desert Fathers and Mothers, all presented as individual anecdotes. There are so many wonderful lines and hidden gems in this book to ponder that I just can't help listing a few to give you a taste for what these monks were like. So here is your daily dose of monastic wisdom in four anecdotes. Number one, Abba Makarius said, If slander has become to you the same as praise, poverty as riches, deprivation as abundance, you will not die. 2. A brother came to see Abba Poemen and said to him, Abba, I have many thoughts, and they put me in spiritual danger. The old man led him outside and said to him, Expand your chest and do not breathe in. He said, I cannot do that. Then the old man said to him, 
If you cannot do that, no more can you prevent thoughts from arising, but you can resist them. 3. Abba Basarian, at the point of death, said, The monk ought to be as the cherubim and the seraphim, all I. 4. Abba Lot went to see Abba Joseph and said to him, Abba, as far as I can, I say my little office, I fast a little, I pray and meditate, I live in peace, and as far as I can, I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? Then the old man stood up and stretched his hands toward heaven. His fingers became like ten lamps of fire, and he said to him, If you will, you can become all flame. It's really a shame that the monks of our story lived before AV technology, as it meant they had no mics to drop. But their reputation for keen insight was well-founded. That authority they possessed was based not just on their stone-cold one-liners, but on the extraordinary stories of faith that they had nurtured in the desert, and that had often brought them into the desert in the first place. Anthony the Great, widely regarded with some inaccuracy as the founder of monasticism, started life as a rich young man living in Egypt. One day he walked into church, late, as Matthew chapter 19 verses 16 to 22 was being read. This, you may know, is the story of the rich young man who asks how he can be Jesus' disciple. Jesus tells this man to go and sell all his possessions. Anthony had surely heard this passage before, but for whatever reason that day he decided that this passage was addressed directly and literally to him. So he went out, sold all his possessions, and wandered into the desert to live as a monk. Later stories about his faith life have the distinctive flair of legends. Anthony is said to have battled demons on the regular, engaged in superhuman feats of self-denial, resolved the burdens of troubled souls with stone-cold one-liners, and even to have prophesied the entire Nicene controversy before it happened. More on that in a later episode. Part of being a monk meant not imbibing alcohol. But if Anthony the Great did drink, he probably would have drunk the beverage associated with the most interesting man in the world. Because that's sure what he sounds like. Now, as I said, these stories come from after Anthony's life was over, and we don't know how much of them might be based in fact. What we do know is that Anthony was not the only monk people told these kind of stories about. Almost every desert father and mother is credited with some kind of supernatural power. So when people had questions about how to live their lives, or about whether a loved one was in heaven, or about whether their own soul was clean, they didn't always turn to their bishop. Sometimes they made a journey out into the desert to consult these holy people, who had given up more than most Romans could imagine. Surely they thought these people would have the wisdom to solve their dilemma. Bishops, of course, did not care for this, nor did they like the fact that the monks were out there having church in the desert without even asking the bishop whether it was cool to set up camp out there or not. And monastic communities were not small. Some of them got to be as big as 7,000 people by the end of the 4th century. The controversy between monks and bishops as to who was the boss of whom is not going to be resolved in the timeline of our story nor, for that matter, that between bishops and martyrs, and between bishops and charismatic teachers. But it's important for you to know that they exist. Not everyone could be smarter than the bishop. Not everyone could become a martyr. 
But anyone, in theory, could choose to walk out into the desert and give up more than a bishop sitting comfortably in the city ever would. And the people who made such massive sacrifices were revered by those who stayed in civilized life. Many early Christians had a sense that their religion demanded sacrifice and self-denial. After all, theirs was a faith of martyrs, even if opportunities for martyrdom were increasingly rare. Those who had engaged in superheroic self-denial had a mystical, charismatic power over the faithful, one that bishops tried and mostly failed to seize for themselves, and one that will detain the church several times over the course of its long journey down the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.